It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, you're listening to the Redbox Podcast. I'm Patrick Maguire, in for Matt Chorley all week. Today, we're talking about money in politics. Next year's election is set to be the most expensive ever. But how much is too much? We'll be discussing that just after today's columnist panel with Paul Mason and Jenny Russell. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, time to discuss today's top stories with two... Great minds. I'm joined by Jenny Russell. Hello, Jenny. Good morning, Patrick. And lovely to hear from you. And Paul Mason. Hello, Paul. Hi, Patrick. Uh, great to have you both. Uh, lots to discuss. Uh, let's kick off with the domestic implications uh, of one of, well, arguably the biggest story uh, of this year, if not the next year, the next decade. Uh, Israel. Israel and Gaza. Um, it's causing big political implications too. Uh, in my column in the Times last week, I looked at whether Keir Starmer's interview on LBC had uh, sparked a crisis of confidence uh, in Labour in Muslim communities uh, up and down the country. That's what some of his shadow cabinet ministers think. It's what some Labour MPs think. Uh, let's hear some of that interview now. I'm very clear. Israel must have that, does have that right to defend herself. Um, and Hamas bears responsibility. A siege is appropriate. Cutting off power, cutting off water. Well, I think that Israel does have that right. It is an ongoing situation. Um, obviously, everything should be done within international law, but I don't want to step away from the sort of core principles that Israel has a right to defend herself. Uh, that was Keir Starmer on LBC uh, about 13 days ago now, uh, in which an interview in which he appeared to say Israel had the right uh, to cut off food, water and electricity to Gaza. He since insists he uh, was giving two overlapping answers to the questions and has said he does not believe Israel has the right to do that. Uh, but Paul, this is an interview that has already assumed a huge amount of notoriety uh, in Labour circles. Do you think, you know, Keir Starmer does have a problem with uh, Britain's Muslim community now? Well, first of all, here's the here's the saddest thing. In, uh, as we go into, I don't know what day it is, day 15, day 16 of this war, the sad thing is that international law does allow you to conduct sieges. And I think many people, if we get into the uh, an even more intense stage of this conflict, are going to be surprised by how much international law actually allows you to do. That's, that's, the, that's the first thing. I think... When I heard that, I thought, you know, this was Keir's lawyer brain 
kicking in mm. to a question that wasn't quite clear. He, he clearly interpreted it as are sieges allowed? And, and, and sadly, they are, as long as you do not target the, the population and try to starve them. Um, now, the wider issue is this. I think Labour has been absolutely right uh, in its in its overall response to this. Um, first, to be absolutely clear that Israel has a right to defend itself and, has, and a right to go to war with Hamas, which is what it's doing. Um, and that it must be done within international law, the laws of armed conflict. Um, that's been the basic position. And I'm glad to see you no know, Labour frontbenchers coming out with uh, lines on the two-state solution, because the, it's only by standing by the strategic outcome that Labour and European Social Democrats have always fought for, the, the, the two-state solution, that we're going to be able to chart a way through this. Um, at the same time, Many British Muslims, many of them who vote Labour, are rightly outraged at the way that Israel has stewarded the Al-Aqsa Mosque or in the Batley by-election. This particular issue was something that drove disaffection with Labour uh, and every Labour activist up there will know about that. Uh, so the art of politics here is to have arguments, not just to sort of give blank sound bites and single words, single sentence statements, and to win arguments out there uh, with Labour's uh, largely pacifist sort of activist base, um, who, like me, have stood uh, again and again on on Palestine solidarity demonstrations. To 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 win the argument, you have to be in the argument. And arguing with people means listening to them carefully and coming back with detailed, evidence based uh, explanations for what you're doing. And that's that's where I think Labour is right now. Some of its front bench spokespeople have been really clear and competent over the weekend doing this. But it wasn't there at the beginning because it's it, it, the Labour conference was meant to be this big, you know, sort of, uh, you know, we're ready for government. Um, I think what it showed is that while we have a great front bench team uh, leading on foreign policy, a lot of Labour members and activists and even some MPs are not instinctively confident when it comes to these big issues of international politics. And I, I think that's one lesson I'd like to see the whole party learn from this episode. What do you think, Jenny? Do you think Keir Starmer's got his response to this one over the past few weeks, right? I think he has largely, but I think I think the whole response to this shows what a complete nightmare it is for anybody trying to plot a path between this that says we care about the human rights and we care about the fate of each of the populations in this divide. Keir Starmer was clearly trying to, in large part, make it absolutely obvious to everybody that Labour is no longer tarnished by the anti-Semitism cloud which hung over it over Jeremy Corbyn's tenure. So he's trying to make absolutely evident to everybody that Labour is backing Israel and that there's no way that it could ever have done anything else after the appalling massacres in on, on the border. But on the other hand, as Paul says, it seems pretty obvious that what Starmer was responding to on air was a question about whether it's legally permissible to do what Labour does, mm. what, 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 what Israel is doing um, with, with Gaza and cutting off water and power. And that got interpreted once it was put out on a clip on social media as whether he approved of this. So there's a difference between describing the world and advocating for it. But in this whole very very difficult debate, then everything that everybody says has to be so nuanced, and yet it can be immediately taken out of context and portrayed by people who are understandably 
um, have very strong views of their own and feel that their own community, whether it's the Jewish community or the Palestinian community, isn't being given um, enough understanding and sympathy. And uh, when when Paul says that the whole of the front bench has to learn to to understand what, what, what to say on these difficult international decisions, the point is that these are incredibly complex matters. Mm. And it's a very difficult thing to ask people to suddenly plunge into the understanding of the last 100 years or two millennia or three and a half millennia of what's been going on um, with, with Jews and Palestinians in the Middle East. And Paul, you know, I think Jenny makes a good point there, which is to say no matter how nuanced uh, an argument Keir Starmer makes, um, you know, he put out another clip on this over the weekend uh, which expressed much more clearly the position uh, we've been discussing. The issue in these days, and I was speaking to Labour people, the Labour leadership last week, and they noted this was a key difference from, say, the Iraq period where there was a similarly sort of toxic domestic debate over what the Labour Party should and shouldn't be doing, is that there are the way a lot of people consume politics now is through these bite-sized videos that bounce around WhatsApp groups, uh, and we co- we we don't see the sort of uh, the the debate and the way they've been edited. And so, you know, you can have as nuanced a, a line as possible. You can cover all bases, but still, people will be watching this viral LBC clip again and again and again, uh, and judging him on solely that basis. Yeah, and I think that that's all right. You've got to politicians have to be able to put out clips and sound bites that uh, that reflect the line and i think largely labor's from bench has done that mm. my point is that that if you look at the the demonstration on saturday the palestinian uh, solidarity demonstration i didn't go on it uh, most uh, i've been on all the other ones there are a minority of people uh, some of them are now being investigated and arrested um who were putting out hate speech and anti-semitic chanting and what we've got to do is to persuade the vast majority of people who are just worried sick about what Israel is going to do to it to, to the to the Palestinians of Gaza, that our solution, which is a two-state solution, which is international law, which is restraint exercised by Israel under pressure from its allies, um, all of that is premised on being able to say we stand with the British Jewish community, we stand with Israel, who has been grievously attacked uh, in at this moment of extreme peril, and. It's being able to do it in that order that we need to mobilise and convince our, and I don't just mean Labour activists, I mean the widely Labour voting progressive public needs to be brought to that page. And the only people who can do it are people with a pulpit, people with a platform. Uh, I, you know, me, Jenny, yourself, we can, as, as journalists, we can do it. But in the end, politicians just need to be out there confidently having the argument. And I think, you know, at grassroots level, they have been. And that's what's going on. We don't see that either. We don't see we don't see what happened when Kia went to the Cardiff uh, Muslim uh, Association meeting last night. But it looks from the, the phot- photographs that it was a, a genuine a, a, a meeting, an exchange of ideas, an exchange of views. That's what where we've got to be. That we can't be in the business of shutting down discussion about stuff. Of course. As a Labour Party member, I don't want to go to a meeting where some undergraduate who's read one book about the Middle East tells me that Israel has no right to exist. I do understand that I have to be able to have the argument with that person. And I think let's take the argument, the argument for a two-state solution, for solidarity with Israel, for restraint under international law, and for facing down Iranian aggression, which is going to, I'm afraid, is the, the background to all this. 
is a socialist, a social democratic position. I'm very happy to argue it with anybody who disagrees. Um, let's get out there and be confident uh, as the progressive half of Britain that we're on the right side of history here. Well, let's see how that develops. It's certainly been causing headaches for Keir Starmer uh, over the past week. Let's move on. In the Times today, uh, a new zero-tolerance plan will be agreed between ministers, police and retailers to crack down on shoplifting and the organised crime gams fuelling the problem. Uh, Matt Chorley spoke to Mark Rowley about this issue just a few weeks ago. There's not a licence to commit any sort of crime. Of course, we do prioritise crime and we spend more time investigating stabbings than we do shoplifting, um, but nothing's licensed. Not a licence to commit any sort of crime. Jenny, I can't imagine you agree with that. No, it's just complete nonsense. I mean, as we know, in effect, that's what's happened. Um, started with the Conservatives um, while they were in power under David Cameron, removing essentially the penalty for shoplifting, so that if you shoplifted anything under £200, it basically wasn't going to be treated as a serious offence, which meant that the police stopped turning up for such offences. And the fact is that now shoplifting has more than doubled in 10 years and yet the number of people charged for shoplifting has fallen by a quarter. You've now got less than a one in 400 chance of ending up with a charge against you if you shoplift anything. And that's just untenable. It means that shops are under siege from John Lewis to the corner shops. You've got organised gangs coming in, sweeping stuff off the shelves and walking out with baskets full of stuff. And nobody dares stop them. And for the police to say that, oh, we're now going to um, make a difference to this today and we're going to have six specialists looking at CCTV footage, that doesn't amount to uh, beans. And, and it's organised crime gangs that are primarily driving this, do you think, Jack? That's right, yes. I mean, when people say, oh, well, baby milk has been taken from the shelves or soap has been taken from the shelves and this shows that people are desperate and uh, it's nothing of the sort. Baby milk is being taken in large quantities because you can sell it. Um, there's a big market for it to sell it on Facebook or in stalls. And it's the same thing for soaps. The, the stuff is just being fenced. And... Uh, What's mostly going on, according to all the retailers, is indeed organised shoplifting. It's not people walking and thinking, I'm really hungry, I'm going to smuggle a, a packet of chicken under my coat. Although that's happening too. Paul, you, uh, you're an expert on the economy. What does this tell us about the state of it? I don't, like Jenny, I don't think this is a phenomenon of poverty. Um, there is poverty-driven shoplifting. And I think one would have compassion for those who are driven to it. Um, but yeah, the, the kind of mass scoop, by the way, almost always with the threat of violence, which is what makes it even more important that the police do investigate. Um, I've noticed the, the shops in my own area in South London, uh, both, you know, a, a, a big food chain and the corner shops are hyping, you know, hiking up their, their physical security in the shop um, and their surveillance. None of that is makes any sense if the, if the police don't turn up. But let's look at the, the wider issue. We're in a period of austerity. We've had uh, long-term cuts in police funding. It's now come back. But if we want the police to do all these things, you know, from arresting people, come out with hate speech on a demonstration in London and surveilling Hizbut Tahrir who, with their jihadi rhetoric, and at the same time dealing with some local gang who's just like, you know, heisted a local corner shop, there's going to have to be more resources. And uh, the, there's only two sources of those resources. Here with my economist hat comes on to me, borrowing, taxation, three sources, and growth. We've got no growth, we're taxed to the limit, and we can't borrow. Um, the next government is going to have to sort that 
before being able to sort the problem of resourcing uh, fully fledged policing of of criminal activities such as what we all want to happen. Yeah, Jenny. Well, yeah, this, completely... Sorry, go on, Jenny. Well, I think I completely agree with Patrick about that. Is it, uh, no, not Patrick. Sorry, Paul, about that. It is a it is a matter of resources. Um, but the basic function of the state is to keep order, whether that is at the march on Saturday or making people feel that actually life is not a free for all, where gangs get to do what they please and there are no consequences. But um, I think that there are, are a couple of things that could be done, and the and the one is that um, we could put greater taxes on wealth rather than income. Mm-hmm. And and the second one is that um, the fact is that the next government, whether they say it or not, is going to have to find ways um, to reverse the worst consequences of Brexit. Because one of the reasons, as we all know, that we're not growing is because it's now so difficult to trade with the EU. And that's one of the things that's collapsing our economy. And Keir Starmer, Paul, has said he's not going to do either of those things, at least not to the extent that some people want him to. He's not going to impose new taxes on wealth and he you know, will pursue closer and, and better relations with the EU without necessarily doing anything uh, like rejoining the single market or the customs union. Do you think those are pledges that we'll inevitably see broken as he reckons with economic reality? I don't think that's the substantial issue. The substantial problem, as I've written in numerous and repeated columns, we're the columnists here, uh, for Labour, is that it has, it has chosen to do uh, supply-side reform as its main way of getting growth to come back. We need growth to come back. You can't borrow your way to it. You can't tax your way to it. I think we've, we, 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 we're knowing that there's a historically high uh, yield on government debt. Okay, that's the starting point. My, I think the, the purpose of a sort of critical Labour left, you know, a critical starmerism, which is what, what I more or less am, is is to say, all right, well, when plan A doesn't quite get there, what are you going to do? If, you know, if we want growth to be driven by investment in green energy, suppose the national grid just remains a big block to it. What is the state going to do? And I think that's, uh, I think, anticipating the next five to 10 years, I hope, um, of of a Labour government, the dynamics of it are, go- are not going to be driven primarily by tax spend and borrowing. It's going to be how do we make the the supply side reform, securonomics, Reevesonomics, how do we make that work uh, when it runs into obst- into obstacles, which it will. Now, last week's by elections saw celebrity endorsements aplenty. Pop idol winner Will Young was at Labour conference in Liverpool. That's why I'm here today, and also I'm here to promote Labour, you know, I think we've been let down by this government. Yeah. I'm posh, but I'm actually not a Tory. Uh, and Ross Kemp it also endorsed Labour at the Selby and Ainsty by-election. The people of Selby and Ainsty have been badly let down after 13 years of the Conservatives. It's time for a change. Every vote counts. Vote Labour for a fresh start in Selby and Ainsty. Uh, that was Ross Kemp and Will Young. Jenny, what do you make of all of this? Do uh, do celebrities ever change people's minds? Oh, I'm sure they do. I mean, we all want trusted guides in life, don't we? And particularly if you're somebody who doesn't spend their life um, following the political pages of the Times, there, of course, would be a mistake not to do oh, that. Oh, of course, yeah. Then, especially reading your column, Patrick. Uh, stop it. Then, then, then why wouldn't you think there's somebody I like and I trust and they've got an opinion and they're telling me what to think about this issue? And celebrities have political opinions like all the rest of us and it would be... A great mistake to think that um, those who feel strongly shouldn't be allowed to, to come out there and, and, and give their opinions just like the rest of us. The trouble is, of course, that very often they don't particularly know what they're talking about. 
well, one difference is Paul Mason, of course. Paul, were you? Did you ever count yourself as a celebrity endorser? Um, no, um, no. There was a time when people did recognise me on the street when I was uh, working for Newsnight, but not anymore. Um, so, yeah, look. The interesting thing, listening to both Will Young and Ross Kemp there, was how in the mainstream they are as celebrities. The real issue, I think the live issue in celebrity endorsement of politics, is when you go to the extremes, when we're talking about internet influencers. Um, that Stella Creasy, uh, the Labour MP for Walthamstow, made several speeches at Labour Party fringe con in the fringe of Labour conference, asking people to consider what would happen if Andrew Tate got involved in British politics. Because if Andrew Tate gets involved in British politics, suddenly every 15-year-old boy who looks up to that guy has got a an avatar telling them to vote for whoever they are going to be. And it could mm. be, who knows, it's certainly not going to be Labour. It's more likely to be a, a, a far-right entity. And we're, we're also seeing uh, some really kind of extreme stuff on Israel-Palestine out there on Instagram and TikTok. From, from influencers. So I think what I'd let's say to, to, to both the public and to people in politics, you at your peril ignore the, the grifter, the person who is putting on, you know, tens, hundreds of thousands of, of followers and monetizing that following through extreme ideologies. Um, they are a lot more influential than most people in mainstream politics want to admit. And I don't think mainstream politics, left or right, has any answer to it yet. That was Jenny Russell and Paul Mason. Remember, you can read Jenny every week in The Times. Just head to thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox to get yourself a subscription. Up next, we're talking money in politics with Charlie Mullins and Delvins. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. I think most people who have dealt with me think I'm 
pretty straight sort of guy, and I am. It was done through loans. It should have been more transparent. We could all accept that. Who paid £160,000 to have tennis, a game of tennis with you. Yeah. Well, Did can, that game actually take place? Can I, can I just make a point about uh, this? And it is quite right that anybody who's a British citizen has the right to play their part in our country's politics and to donate to a political party. It's because he is simply in the pockets of his union paymaster. Well, those are just some of the big stories around money in politics that have come and gone over the years. From Tony Blair's donations from Bernie Eccleston to Boris Johnson's tennis matches with a Russian donor. Now, we're talking about money in politics today because when it comes to election campaign spending in Britain, it turns out the sky is not the limit. Party election spending is capped at £30,000 for each constituency contested. That's equivalent to about £19 million for both Labour and the Conservative Party who put up a candidate in every seat. That figure has not changed, remarkably, since it was set in 2000. However, the levelling up secretary Michael Gove has revealed that the government intends to raise the cap in line with inflation. Now, just to put that into context, the Bank of England estimates that £19.5 million in 2000 will be worth just over £35 million today. So, voters should be prepared to be bombarded with more leaflets and social media ads than ever before, as these changes in spending limits will give parties up to 15 million more to spend on the campaign for next year's general election. And I know, having spoken to them, that the people who run the campaigns for Labour and the Tories think they can hit that cap. Now, today we're going to talk about how parties might spend that money, how it works in America, where spending is on a different scale entirely, and... We're going to hear from the people who choose to give their own money to the big parties. And two of them, who you will have heard of, join me now. Dale Vince, the Labour Party donor and ecotricity, is with us. Good morning, Dale. Yeah, morning. And Charlie Mullins, the British businessman, the founder of Pimlico Plumbers and a former donor to the Conservatives. Hello, Charlie. Yeah, good morning, Gia. Good morning, Patrick. Uh, Dale, let's start with you. Under our system, parties don't get much state funding, uh, and the government party doesn't get any, uh, so they have to look to donors like you. I mean, why do, you, why do you do it? You've got lots of money. I mean, you know, you spend a lot of it on Forest Green Rovers, and so people might think you're addicted to lost causes, given that you donate to the Labour Party as well. But, you know, why, why do you donate to... Why, why do you choose to spend your money on political donations? Look, um, <clears throat> I give money to all kinds of good causes, uh, not just Labour Party, not just Forest Green Rovers or Just Stop Oil, Greenpeace. Uh, I fund school breakfast clubs and food banks here in Australia, give jobs to homeless people. I do all kinds of good things. I try to help people that are trying to do good in the world. And to come to your question, Labour always face a spending deficit between themselves and the Tories. At the last election, the Tories outspent everybody else put together. And I give them money to try and help bridge that gap. Um you're also, as you say, giving money to Just Stop Oil, which the Tories banged on about again and again and again. It was a bit awkward for Keir Starmer when he was trying to distance himself from Just Stop Oil. Um, is that why you stopped donating, to, to give Keir Starmer an easier ride? No, I'm not sure if you saw my statement, but the point I made was that the Conservatives had been clear that no amount of protesting would stop them drilling in the North Sea. In fact, they doubled and trebled down, threatening to issue hundreds of new licences instead of just a handful because of the protest, and they tried to weaponize the protest, creating a new culture war front for themselves against green stuff. And it seemed very clear to me that we can't stop oil through protest, but we can stop it through the ballot box. That was the logic I laid out in my statement. And what do you get, what's in it for you as a donor beyond donating to 
good causes as you put them, causes you see as as worthy. Do you speak to Keir regularly? Do you get time with shadow cabinet ministers? Is there a, an advantage for ecotricity in, in, in you doing all of this? No, I never ask for anything. I never get offered anything. I don't want anything. I just want to help them win the election. Uh, but do you speak to Keir? I have spoken to him probably twice, maybe, in my life. I met him at the conference, uh, an after-speech get-together, and we spoke for probably five minutes. We talked about football. Mm. Uh, Is he he, uh, Forest Green now his second team, after all the money you've given him? (laughs) I have no idea. But (laughs) but, uh, we we are going to have a a -a five-a-side game. Uh, Well, we talk about it anyway. Whether it'll happen or not, I don't know. But, you know, it's a bit of football banter between us. That's it. But, look, I, I know how the stereotype goes, and I think it's been created through donations to the Tory party, where a lot of cash is given for influence, for policy changes, for planning consents, all kinds of stuff. And a lot of it is hidden as well. It's just not transparent. I sit in front of a camera anytime and talk about what I've given and why I give it. Uh, and it's very rare for you to be able to find, I think, a Tory donor to do the same. You've got Charlie today. I see that. And uh, I was wondering, who, excuse me, who, who you would have. Well, Ch- well, Charlie has always been very open about uh, the cash he spent on uh, donating to the Tory party. Uh, but Charlie, you, you, you're not you're not in that game anymore, are you? No, I've stopped donating to him since uh, since we left the EU. And um, you know, I'm rather like like a Stoughton. I, I I put my money to other causes, and uh, one of them is like shooting star ostrich. So any money that I would have given to uh, the Tories in the in the in the past. Now it goes to shooting star office, and um, I don't think there's nothing wrong with, with people donating and then uh, raising the limit. I think by eighty percent, there's nothing wrong with that because I think you know everybody's got to go in there with the best chance they can. But I feel this year that um, you know hopefully they do raise it and uh, you know still stay into power because you know they're obviously struggling at the moment. Um, would you? I mean. When you were donating to the Tories, you got a lot of access. You know, you've spoken about going in and out of number 10, meeting David Cameron, meeting George Osborne, you know, going to the balls the Tories hold for their donors. Do you miss all of that? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I think because I'm involved with a lot more charity work now, so I don't miss it. But, you know, it's just part of if you put a few quid in, then they invite you. But, you know, it doesn't necessarily give you any favours other than you know, invitations to certain things. Um, You know, uh, I've met a few of the Prime Ministers and, um, you know, it's all very open and and, and my donations are very open. But once I stopped donating, they felt that, uh, you know, maybe they don't want to be part of, or me part of them. But, um, no, so the answer is I don't miss it. Um, You know, I'm more concerned that, you know, they do win the next general election. I think it's somewhere just before a year in January. And, um I think they've got to chuck everything at it at the moment, including the kitchen sink. <laughs> well, you can sort that out for them. As a businessman, Charlie, have you been? What do you think of Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves? Well, they're not they're not business orientated, so that that's one of the reasons that um, you know I don't want them in. I just don't think they've got what is needed. I don't think they're honest enough, and uh, but more so, you know, Labour is just not business orientated, and and that's where the Conservatives should win hands down. And you'd like to think that they could win without having to spend extra money, but you know, so much damage has been done, I think, with party gating and the COVID situation. I think they're really struggling at the moment. Would you ever think of donating money to the Tories again, or are you done with that? Whew, uh, it really depends, you know what I mean? It depends mm. who's Prime Minister, I think, and, um, you know, it really depends on the situation at the time. But, you know, I was pretty put out when we left the EU and pretty put out with some other things, and... Um, 
So, you know, I'll probably cross that bridge when I get to it. Is there anything you could, uh, that could stop you from donating to uh, Labour, Dale? Um, I have no idea. Oh, I, so, yeah, no, sorry, I had the question. I, I have no idea, actually. Um, I hadn't given that a lot of thought. I mean, I just think the Tories have done incredible damage to our economy in the last 13 years. I was listening to Charlie there saying that, you know, effectively they're, they're more businesslike than Labour. I don't think that's true. I think they've shown themselves to be very unbusinesslike in the last 13 years. And I think we need to give Labour a chance. What do you, what do you say to that, Charlie? Uh, just wait one second. Okay. Um, I was talking to you. Um, it, uh, I, I think I only heard half it. You disagree that, that uh, Labour are not business orientated now, yeah? Yeah, that's right, Charlie. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think the Tories have shown themselves to be detached from business and business interests. I mean, Brexit is a great example of it. I mean, they, they refused to listen to businesses that were saying this will be harmful. I mean, Boris Johnson said F business. That was like how important he thought business was. And I think that, uh, you know, Labour, we need to give them a chance. Um, OK, well, look, look I, I'm going to probably disagree because I'm, you know, strongly a conservative. Um, but... You know, I think it's been a tough few years and, and obviously the economy suffered with various things. And yes, I think Brexit was a, was a, is a big disaster. But, you know, I feel that uh, I feel we'd be worse off with Labour in from a business point of view and many other point of views. Um, you know, but uh, as you say, nobody knows. But, you know, can we risk giving, giving Labour a chance? I mean, you know, the, the business that I know about them is it's just not business orientated at all. It's just giving money to people that don't work for argument's sake. And, and, you know, they're just not on the same level of the Conservatives from a business point of view. But, you know, it's been a tough few years, as you know, Dale. Yeah, I do. And listen, I, I just think, and, and no offence, but that's a lazy stereotype to say that Labour just want to give uh, money to, uh, you know, people without jobs and people that don't want to work. That's not what it's about. And that's not a measure of how business like Labour are. If you look at the plan for the economy, the green economy in particular, where the, where the big opportunities are, they get it, whereas the Tories have turned their backs on it. And I think that's a disaster for our country. It's like another Brexit in the making for us, because the big economies of the world, China, the EU and the US, are running hell for leather towards the green economy because they see the benefits from it. We're turning our backs on it. Yeah, well, again, it depends, I think, you know, who's going to be Prime Minister and, and we can obviously change things. But, you know, I'm just sort of saying nothing impresses me about Labour, nothing at all. I'd be quite frightened if they was running, uh, running the country at the moment because I just don't think they've got nothing there. And uh, the care fella, I mean, you know, I just don't reckon him at all. But, you know, it's just my opinion from a business point of view. I think we'd be worse off if Labour get in. Well, we'll see how the campaign goes. We'll see what the parties spend their 35 million quid on. Uh, just to conclude our discussion, Dale, you know, you have donated lots of money to the Labour Party, but do you think a healthier system uh, that would you know, liberate the big parties, the political system from the influence of, of donors without casting aspersion on, aspersions on either of you um, would be if we spent taxpayers' money on it. You know, in a lot of countries, political parties are funded by the state. Uh, you know, in our nearest neighbour, yeah. Ireland, that's the case. Across much of Europe, that's the case. Do you think that would be a better system? Yeah, I do, because you mentioned the US system uh, earlier on and, and you, you mentioned how it's another another level compared to what we've been used to spending here. And and there's always been a funding gap between the Conservatives and Labour. There's always the, the danger of influence. Big money goes into one party or the other. There's always the danger of influence. The, people, the public see that. That creates cynicism around politics as well. And I think for a, a relatively small sum of money, we could have an evenly funded, fair, clean political system. I mean, selling HS2 land last week or the week before, 
for by Rishi Sunak, that costs us 100 million quid. We don't need that much money to fund a clean election, right? We can do it with 50 million quid or something like that. And I say that would be a good investment for our country and our democracy. Do you agree, Charlie? State funding of political parties, yes or no? Well, definitely no. I mean, we, you know, taxpayers' money, I mean, we need to spend that on better things. You know, the, the, under no circumstances can it be taxpayers' money. I know it makes it more of a level playing field in, in the sense that, you know, a lot of the Conservatives are big billionaires that are donating. But, you know, uh, definitely not, not this on uh, that taxpayers should be paying it for the uh, funding of that. Definitely not. Well, Charlie Mullins, British businessman, founder of Pimlico Plumbers, former Tory party donor, and Dale Vince, Labour donor and founder of Ecotricity. Thanks very much for joining us. And let's turn our attention to the US, where large amounts of money, and that's putting it lightly, dominate political and presidential campaigns to a degree not seen in decades. Now, I spoke to Sarah Baxter, director of the Marie Colvin Centre for International Reporting and former Sunday Times legend, to find out how election spending differs in America from the UK. It's such a shoestring. Uh, Recently, a senator for New Jersey, Bob Menendez, was uh, arrested after his home was searched and they found the police found $500,000 in cash stuffed into his jacket pockets and 13 gold bars. So that's how much money can sometimes be sloshing around US politics. Wow. So talk us through how that happens because here we have quite stringent campaign spending limits quite a low cap michael gove uh, who is the minister in charge of elections is hiking them to just over 30 million pounds but compared to the amount of money PACs and super PACs, political action committees and super political action committees can raise for candidates for even as you say not even presidential office in america it's a pretty small beer isn't it it's peanuts. Obviously, the example I cited was uh, an example of alleged corruption. Uh, but the money is just stupendous in American politics. Now, if you believe the official figures, they're not so different. So, for example, an individual can only contribute $3,300 to, uh, say, you know, Donald Trump or Joe Biden's uh, presidential campaign. But you mentioned something called the super PACs, and they can contribute unlimited sums, they have to disclose what um, they are um, contributing. But there's also something called dark money in US politics, where undisclosed funds can flow into those super PACs, which then uh, go to help individual candidates, both for sort of midterm elections and for presidential elections. And there's a sort of fig leaf that means that the super PACs are not allowed to cooperate directly with individual campaigns, but they bombard the airwaves with their candidate's message. So it amounts to the same thing. And by the way, I think you'll probably want to know that the total expenditure in uh, 2020, um, the last time there was a presidential election in the US, uh, nearly $7 billion was spent, and most of it came through um, super PACs. Wow. And who and who, who wins in the fundraising stakes? Is it as simple as, you know, the Republicans, there's lots of rich Republicans out there, um, or is it, does, does it vary from election to election? Well, it varies. I mean, Barack Obama was a stupendous uh, fundraiser in his day and got a lot of money from small donors. But so, by the way, does uh, Donald Trump, who has been on an incessant fundraising world from the day he left office. And uh, I think 
I think he's uh, already raised about half of uh, 500 million dollars just since um 2020 but of course a lot of that has been gobbled up on his legal funds but he is the big um cheese in the room he's 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 supposed to have you know he's supposed to have raised 7 million dollars just on the back of his mugshot if you remember the infamous shot of him appearing in a courtroom so um this is, uh, it, it, we're talking staggering sums. I think Joe Biden has so far officially raised um, very small beer compared to Donald Trump. But of course, as president, he can take to the national stage when he wants, as he did recently uh, addressing the nation over the conflict in um, in Israel and Gaza and the need to raise money for Ukraine as well. So he has that uh, presidential pulpit. Donald Trump is constantly fundraising and then there are people like Ron DeSantis you know there sort of once was Ronda future he was going to beat Trump allegedly at one point and be the Republican nominee he raised huge sums of money in the first instance mostly from large donors but now that he needs more and is somewhat on the back foot they're all maxed out so um, it's it's a very sort of uh, weird landscape very different to Britain. And another key difference you mentioned Donald Trump is If you are a very wealthy individual in the US with political ambitions, perhaps for the highest office in the land, you can essentially buy yourself into any race. You can buy the adverts, you can hire the staff. We saw that with with Trump, less successfully with Michael Bloomberg, uh, Tom Steyer, uh, Ross Perot for listeners of a certain age. That's another key difference, isn't it? It's a, uh, yeah, very much so. I think billionaires are always fancying their chances. Do you remember at one stage there was the sort of Mark Zuckerberg alleged presidential tour? Yeah, when he, he was, was sort of eating chips in Iowa, yeah. Yeah, the country, I think, let him know that they weren't that interested in listening to him. <laughs> so we haven't heard so much about it. But obviously he has the... Um, the Facebook money uh, to uh, launch presidential campaign whenever he likes. Elon Musk, of course, bought t- uh, Twitter, now called X, and it's looking more and more like his personal vehicle. Uh, for what? Ultimately, who knows? Um, so, yes, I think um, billionaires always think that uh, they can um, solve the world's problems. You mentioned Michael Bloomberg. He was very unhappy at the prospect of Joe Biden being the potential Democratic nominee in 2020, and he was afraid that Bernie Sanders, a very radical figure, might win uh, the primary campaign. So he decided to jump in with all his billions and was a total belly flop. Just to conclude, do you think American politics is just on an endless ratchet up of expense? Well, things have got worse. Uh, things used to be tighter before, and an, an act was passed in about 2010, I believe, that that opened the floodgates to this super PAC money, which, you know, one day, maybe, all this will be reformed. But right now, uh, it's there's so much money sloshing around that, uh, I mean, the, the 2020 election was a total blowout. I mean, nobody had spent, um, I mean, I think the total money on US politics, if you include the Senate, you know, all the congressional races, $14 billion was spent in 2020. And my guess is that even more will be spent in 2024. It's been on an absolute tear ever since, um, you know, that sort of period about 2010 when the floodgates opened. That was Sarah Baxter, director of the Mary Colvin Centre for International Reporting. She spent decades reporting on politics in the US and the UK. That was her comparison. Back home, 
Here in Britain, meanwhile, the increased spending limits raises the prospect of what could be uh, the most expensive and dirtiest election battle in British history. Uh, We've seen the two main parties already trading highly personal blows. Labour running attack ads accusing Rishi Sunak of not believing that paedophiles should go to prison and Rishi Sunak accusing Labour of being in cahoots with criminal gangs in the perpetuation of illegal migration. Well, joining me now is Steve Parker, previously Head of Strategy at MNC Saatchi, the advertising agency most closely associated uh, with uh, conservative political campaigns in the UK. He joins me now. Hi, Steve. Hey, how you doing, Patrick? Uh, great to have you, Steve. Great to hear from you, as ever. Uh, look, we just heard from Sarah Baxter about the US. Um, it's a really different story in the UK, even as the even as the campaign limit increases, because unlike in many other countries, the US, Canada, political parties can't buy ads on telly. No, you can't buy ads on TV. We have, I guess, the the old party political broadcasts, which I imagine have a huge reach once upon a time, but now sort of find themselves tucked away in, in, in the scheduling. So no TV advertising means you can't get that huge reach. But you can spend on posters, you can spend on digital advertising. And the latter, I think in particular, has where most of the budget is, is funneled today, I think with increasing effect. And, and this is where, you know, labor, the Labour strategy you've just been talking about, uh, the pretty well-honed Tory strategy that was so successful the last, last election comes into play. You know, do you think given that the parties will have an extra nearly 20 million to play with, a lot of that, as well as on staffing and direct mail, will go on, as you say, social media clips, those viral clips that really do much of the running in campaigns now. Yeah, I think we highly localised. That's how people are using uh, Facebook. It's 650 mini campaigns that allows them to run sort of every election. And historically, there was a big sort of divide, national to local. You you know, as a candidate, you can still only spend, I believe, £8,700 in your constituency uh, in the month leading up to the election. But that's completely um, sort of taken out by digital. So um, it means Labour can spend national money um supporting new les in uxbridge and tories can do can do can do the can do the reverse so um it allows you to be very very local and i i would uh wouldn't be surprised if that's how it continues and how much of a game changer do you think uh an additional 20 million quid is will it do you think it'll make the campaign noticeably more intense noticeably dirtier noticeably uh more bitter you know will we see you know, it, will it be properly transformative? It, it is what I'm asking, or you know, will it feel will it feel much the same? Well, it depends how they're going to uh, spend the money. I mean, historically, the Conservatives have spent a lot of money on uh, research groups. I wouldn't be surprised if that goes the same way. I think in 2015, when we worked on the campaign, they spent four million pounds with Crosby Texter, Linton Crosby's business, uh, and very little. Uh, to MNC Saatchi, very pennies, in fact, at the time, really. Like, most advertising agencies did it for um, the fame, you know, the fees were, ah. were there. And, um, you know, you get some money and late, you know, and but the ads are mostly don't run in, in, in national media. Media is very expensive. I'd be very surprised knowing what I've known from speaking to politicians if they decide the way to go is on poster advertising. What Those the- tend to be big, big PR moments. They might have a bit of a reveal. This is our big ad. You know, someone in front of it uh, and the press called up. But then backing that with a million pounds worth of spend around the country, I'd be I'd be surprised if they if they went back to that strategy. On on, on the billboards that, as you say, have become really famous over the years, precisely because of the photo calls you mentioned. Really interesting, too, that you say advertising agencies often do these things 
is it essentially a way to advertise themselves? You know, they'll become known to big corporates as, oh, you're the company that did, I don't know, uh, I know this was the earlier iteration of the Saatchi's, but Labour isn't working, for instance. That's what they're trying to do. Yeah, and it, it, it's trying to make one of those ads. It's, you know, a chance to be famous. And I think for the agency owners, a chance to sort of influence uh, politics and influence society beyond, you know, I guess, selling toothpaste and selling cars, which they might be <laughs> doing for the rest of the year. So um, it's the chance to sort of do something with a bit more gravitas and weight behind it. But media agencies don't do these things for free. You can't go and buy posters uh, because you want to sort of get in with the political party. Those things cost pounds and pence. And um, I think... You know, politicians, like a lot of marketeers, see the value in Facebook, in Instagram, um, in Twitter, potentially, maybe less so these days, and thus invest their money there where they can see a real difference. And also, these things are great for participation. You know, you see where you spend more money, uh, you get more people into the ballot box. Now, the messages that drive them to the ballot box might be might be negative, but it does increase participation. And I think in certain constituencies, that will really help. Um, really help Labour, uh, really help the Conservatives as well. So I'd be, you know, I think they'll double down on their current strategy rather than diversify and try something new. Interesting, and not least because, as you say, you mentioned focus groups earlier. I imagine uh, both Labour and the Tories will be spending this money on people, on people to run campaigns in local constituencies, get the vote out, because often that makes all the difference. Knocking on doors, making sure people do get to the polls and the parties get their vote out. So it could be, as you say, Steve Parker, uh, really transformative. Thanks very much for joining us on today's big thing. That was Steve Parker, previously head of strategy at MNC Saatchi, with some really interesting reflections on uh, how that extra 19 million quid or so will transform or perhaps not, at the next general election campaign. That's all we've got time for on today's Redbox podcast. I'll be back tomorrow. In the meantime, don't forget to like, share, subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcasts from. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. <laughs> <laughs> you will be right Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.